Now, good afternoon. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and it's great to be gathering, as I mentioned a moment ago, with you today. Um, And we're going to be wrapping up a study today that we started three weeks ago, and it's a series called Living Letters to a Dying World. And throughout this study, our aim has really been to thread together a couple of different texts of the Bible to help us answer this question, why are we here? Not like, why are we gathered here today, uh, or like, you, know, you might have asked yourself in the last two and a half years, like, why am I here? Uh, not, not that question, um, but, but rather after we become Christians, why aren't we just immediately transported like right up to heaven? You ever wondered that? Like, why am I here? Like, like this world, there's broken things. Our bodies are broken. Relationships are broken. Things aren't as they ought to be. Why, why are we here? What is our aim as Christians and what are we here for? So that's what we've been exploring the last couple of weeks in a study that we have entitled Living Letters to a Dying World, the name that I hope explains why we're here. Uh, And the entire study that that we've been doing really comes, uh, as we said, uh, week in and week out from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, where there are, uh, if you remember the context of of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul planted this church in Corinth. And then after some time, some new super apostles showed up, some guys who thought that they were the bee's knees. Uh, and they, they came into Corinth with some stellar letters of recommendation. You ever been working on like a letter of recommendation? And you're like, look at me, bro. I'm flexing. Look at all this I got. This is what these guys did. They showed these super apostles and they start bad mouthing Paul, homeboy who planted that church, questioning his identity as an apostle. And Paul, therefore, is, said, is asked, like, where are your letters of recommendation, Paul? These guys have them. Where are yours? And Paul uh, looks at these men and women whose lives have been transformed by Jesus as he preached in their midst, right? These people who their lives went from idol worshipers, demon worshipers, to God-fearers and Jesus worshipers. He looks at them and, and he just refuses to play this game. And he says, you, you are my letters. I don't need letters from somebody else. Your life is the letter of his apostleship, not written by Paul, but rather written by God. They are the letter from Jesus, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, God the spirit, not written on tablets of stone, but written on human hearts. Thus, their transformed lives are the evidence of Paul's ministry, that he was sent by Jesus to open his mouth and share with them the good news of the gospel. And when he did that, when he shared with them, they were convicted over their sin, convinced of the truthfulness of Jesus, and transformed by God. Thus, their transformed lives were these living letters written by God for all to see. As, as uh, Matt said a couple of weeks ago, not as a private letter to be read by no one, but rather as public correspondence for everyone to see from Jesus to the world. And so we've endeavored over the last couple of weeks to explain from various texts what is true of, of the Corinthians is also true of us as Christians, all of us, that our lives are living letters written by Jesus and sent into the world around us with the message of the gospel so that others might hear the good news from our lips and they might turn by faith from their sin and trust upon Jesus as their God, Savior, and King. And so as we've said, our lives, therefore, are to be letters. Now, we have a problem here, though, because if you're under the age of 25, you don't know what a letter is. Letters are these amazing things. They were notes people used to write to one another a long time ago, before social media ever existed. And people would take time out of their busy day to write down words on a piece of paper with a pen or pencil. And then they would take that letter they had crafted and they would fold it into a weird shape and they would place it into another piece of paper. And and then they would have to lick the top of it. And it was disgusting. It was the worst tasting thing you've ever tasted in your life. And you would lick it and then want to throw up afterwards. And and then you turn it over again and you'd write their name and address where they lived on it. And and then with with the hopes that when it went, it it went to them. So so what you do then is you take this letter to a post office, an office 
for the post, the mail. And when you would take it there, you would put a stamp on it and send it. Now you also, this is important, you have to write your name and address also on it in case it gets to the wrong person. And they say, nope, this not me. And then they send it back to you. And then you get it in the mail and then you'd have to get the right address and go through this whole rigmarole all over again. It was crazy. And, and people used to walk to their mailboxes and they would open them and they would be delighted. Kids, I know you've never seen your parents do this. Never. But they would open it. They would be delighted. I got a letter. Uh, it wasn't junk mail, right? You immediately get it and just throw it away. That's all I do. I, thank you. I just, I leave it there. I don't even, what am I doing with this? This is not like this. People used to walk their mailboxes, get mail, and they would be so excited. And they'd grab their mail and they'd tear it open. They'd read that message that this person sent to you. And then you'd start crafting a letter back to them and then put it in the mail. And then it would go on and on and on. And I know what you're thinking. That sounds barbaric and time-consuming. But that's how life worked before emails and text messages and DMs. And the interesting thing is that if you wrote a letter with a message and put it in an envelope and sealed it and addressed it and put a stamp on it, but then put it in your pocket or your office drawer and you forgot about it and never sent it, that letter never fulfilled the purpose for which you wrote it. You're like, I wrote and told you about that. They're like, no, you didn't. Because the letter didn't fulfill the purpose of it. See, letters are meant to be sent in order to be read. They're not stuffed in a drawer. No, it fulfills its intention actually in its going and it's being sent. Thus, the whole purpose of writing a letter is to send a particular message to a particular person, right? So bring that back to our lives. If we are then contending that we are living letters to a dying world, the two, sending letters to a dying world, references that we are sent by Jesus to the world. Thus, something necessary is being, is that we are then sent as part of our identity as Christians, so that our lives can be known and read by all. And so before we talk about our identity as sent, I thought it'd be helpful if we talk about the content of the letter then. Right? The content of the letter is, is really important. If we get the content wrong, then we misrepresent God and who he is. So what does God, if we are living letters, what is the content of our lives that is then to be sent? Or in other words, what question or content does God have for the world? And as we read the Bible, we see that there are two big main parts to the message. There's the bad news and there's the good news. Now, the, the Bible doesn't open immediately with bad news. That's not a depressing book from page one. In fact, it opens with really good news. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter one, it's good, 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 very good. It's a great chapter. And it's there in those very first two chapters of the Bible where we see that it was God the one who actually created everything that exists simply by speaking it into existence. And we see that he is the only true and living God. There's none other like him. He's the author of everything that exists and everything that exists is made for his glory, for his praise. Our kids are gonna be learning about this earlier today, or later, right now or later today, and they're talking about creation existing for the glory, the praise of God. Right? In the same way that if one of my kids draws an awesome picture, and I see it, and I say, Teo, great job, man. And he's like beaming, and Owen's like, I wrote that. He didn't draw that picture. And then Teo's like, yeah, actually, he did. It wasn't me. Right, in the same way, God made everything so that we would praise him for what he has done. Not so that others can take advantage of that and take the credit and the praise. Likewise, God made all things for his glory, that we might see who he is. And he made, out of, made everything, not because he needed anything. He's not Tom Cruise, right? Like, you complete me. No, there's not a U-shaped hole in the heart of God. He does not need you. Out of his fullness, he created everything that exists for his glory and for his good pleasure. So he's not a God who's ingratiating, sad God who needs us, rather God who wants us and loves us, who made us, not out of lack, but out of fullness. And everything was made good including our very first parents, our representative heads, Adam and Eve. For we're told of how God made them completely distinct from the rest of creation. And how God created humanity in his image, meaning lots of things, but including things like how we have rational minds and emotions and creativity and love and a longing for friendship with God and with others. See, we are made distinct from the rest of creation, displaying unique things about God's character that my dog, Lucy, can just never do. I love her, but she can never, ever do it. And that extends to all of us as humans, 
down to our maleness and our femaleness as these God-given genders that display the wonder and the majesty of God as humans. And as the story unfolds in the book of Genesis, we read of how God gave our first parents one rule to live by, not to eat from a particular tree in the garden where he placed them. And this one law was not heavy-handed or mean, but rather it was meant for their flourishing so that as they obeyed God's law and submitted themselves to it, they lived under his righteous rule as God, demonstrating that he is God and they are not. And they loved God's law. They delighted in it. They, they loved God and they loved his law until one day a serpent enters into the garden, slithers up, and in a moment they question everything. They question God's word, his law. They hear, did God really say that? Uh, probably not. And then they, they question God's judgment. Pfft, you're not gonna die if you do that. That's silly. You're not gonna die. And in a moment, they rebelled against God. And we see it's because they wanted to be like God. They no longer wanted to submit to his law, but they wanted to be like him, deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. And the most interesting thing is that down throughout history, even to today, these are the two ways that you and I as humans wrestle with God. We open his word and we say, did God really say that? Ah, I read it, but I don't think so. Because really, I mean, did he mean that? Well, probably not. And the question is judgments. Oh man, if you break God's law, you hold to some antiquated thing that God is gonna judge you? Come on, man, haven't we progressed beyond that? God is love after all. He doesn't hold anyone to account for anything. There's no judgment with him. And in these two things, it's, it's the same lies that we hear from the garden. Just repeat it all over again. Did he really say, Paul, you won't die. There's no judgment for you. Come on, man. It's the same thing. These are the lies meant to deceive us into rebelling against God and his word. Because we, like our first parents, want to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We don't want to submit to God. We want to be like God. And the inward pull towards rebellion against God exists in all of our chests from birth and by nature and it plagues all of us. And it's because of that one moment in history where those first parents broke God's laws and plunged us, all of us, into brokenness so that everything that God made that was good and holy and perfect and righteous is now broken and marred and not what it ought to be. Doesn't sin always do that? Think about relationships that you have. Think about like something that starts off so well and then sin happens, brokenness, lies, manipulation, and then it just ends terribly. Y'all have relationships like that. Isn't that just exactly what sin does? And how sin, your sin and the sins of others just ruins good things and makes them terrible. And as a result of this disobedience from Adam and Eve, all of humanity then is plunged into a broken world where there's now animosity between us and God because we want to be like him, deciding good and evil for ourselves, not trusting what he says is good and evil. And there's animosity between us, right? We fight and we bicker about lots of things. And then there's animosity and brokenness inside of us, right? Like we don't know why we do the things that we do. You hate that thing that you do, but you keep doing it anyway. And you're like, why am I doing, I hate this. Why do I respond to my wife like that when she says that? Why, why do I get so angry in traffic? Because everyone else is a terrible driver and I'm the best. If they were like me, everything would be fine, Right? And then we get, we get hangry and we have evil longings and desires and urges. It's kind of like there's a spirit of disobedience inside of our chest pulling us to do all these things and we hate it. And the Bible says that's exactly what's happening and that that is our greatest problem in the world. See, our greatest problem in the world is not that there are broken systems, that, that there are evil monarchs, that there are bad prime ministers creating weird laws or bad laws. Systems and structures are not our primary wrong brokenness, the outside of the world that we are called to go fix. Rather, the greatest problem in the world is that deep down inside of your own chest, you are broken and bent in every possible way because of the effects of sin. Deep down from birth and by nature, you're an enemy of God who hates him and wants nothing to do with him and you wanna go your own way because you're better than everyone else and if there is a God, you want to be like him and choose for yourself what is right and wrong. 
And I know that about you because the Bible says it. And I also feel it deep in my own heart, man. Deep in there. Thus, the bad news of the Bible, bad news of the Bible is that from birth and by nature, all of us are born into a broken world, wanting to be like God and rebelling against him, wanting to choose for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. None of us is born spiritually neutral, therefore, but we are all born spiritually at war with God as rebels who will rebel. And because of this, the Bible explains that we deserve to stand before God in judgment. We've broken his law, just like you're breaking the law over in St. Anne, driving four kilometers greater than the speed limit, you will get a ticket. I guarantee you, I know this personally. In the same way, there are consequences to breaking God's law. Firstly, there is physical death. We will all die unless Jesus comes back. That's why we all die anyway, is because of sin. Before sin, there was no death. Now, all of us die. Do you know that the, the percentage rate of people who die is 100%? Everybody. And unless Jesus comes back real soon, we're all gonna die. Like 110 years from now, we'll all be dead if he tarries that long. All of us are gonna die. And when we die, the Bible explains that we all deserve to stand before God and be judged for our rebellion and to spend all of eternity future suffering under the just judgment of God for our many sins. Friends, this is the bad news of the Bible, that we have all deserved and earned the eternal judgment of God. That's the bad news. And yet the good news that we read about in the Bible is that God made a way for you and I who are rebels who deserve nothing but judgment to receive pardon and forgiveness. He has made a way for you to be forgiven, cleared of all of your offenses before God. And it doesn't come by you becoming more religious or really moral. Like God isn't waiting for you to clean yourself up and get sober and make better life decisions. He's not waiting for you to just simply have enough faith and then he'll move in and move that mountain. No, my friend. Rather, when we were his enemies, he made a way for us to be forgiven, pardoned, cleansed, and washed from every defilement. And this happened as Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the one who we have rebelled against, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time. And Jesus comes and he lives the life we ought to have lived, submitting to God the Father's laws. And then he also, empowered by the Spirit, did what we could never do obeying, but also then standing condemned in our place. So if you read in the Gospels, Jesus lived a spotless life, perfect in every possible way and free from rebellion and sin of every kind. And then he who knew no sin stood condemned in our place on a cross, both dying the physical death that we deserve to die, but then also taking upon himself the eternal judgment of God that we deserve to pay, the wrath of God against our many sins. And he suffered and he died paying that, that debt. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering over Satan's sin and death, proving that he paid it in full. So that now Jesus offers you forgiveness of sins for your rebellion, not because you have earned it, not because you mustered up faith and studied hard or believed the right things or grew up in the right family, but rather because Jesus sought you and bought you with his redeeming love when you were his enemy. Friends, he came after you. You did not come after him. This is why as Christians, what do we pray for people all the time? We pray, we pray that God would save them. Why? Because that's his job. We can't save them, right? You ever think about that? Think about, why do I ask that? It's because God must do the saving. We do the praying and the sharing and the telling and the proclaiming. God does the saving. This is why it's called good news, gospel. That word gospel means good news because if left to our own, we'd never be good enough to please God. We've never tipped the scales in our favor. We've never have faith enough to win God's favor. No, while slimy TV preachers will sympathetically look at you and look at you and just say, you are enough. The Bible looks at you and says, you are not enough. Jesus is enough. So, so the goal here is not you being better, you being enough. The goal here is you realizing you're not enough and you cannot save yourself and you need a savior. And apart from him, there is no way for you to have forgiveness of sins. Thus, come to him. See, and if you're, you're here kicking tires on Christianity and you're wondering, man, why do you guys talk about Jesus so much? You sing about him, you talk about him. It's because we've come to believe 
all of those things are true, that from birth and by nature, we are, I am, headed towards an eternity suffering under the righteous judgment of the only true and living God because I have rebelled against him. But, praise God, he's made a way for my debt to be forgiven. Not by me trying harder or being better, but by Jesus, God the Son, coming and standing condemned in my place for my sin, suffering the judgment that I deserve to pay so that I could be forgiven. And if you're a Christian, that's your story. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's not only good news for me, though, it's also good news for you. Because even now, God is ready and willing to forgive you of your sin if you'll come admitting your sin and asking for forgiveness and believing upon Jesus that he, God the Son, lived a perfect life that you ought to have lived and stood condemned in your place so that you could be saved from facing the judgment of God against your sin. And Jesus is ready and willing to forgive you of your sin right now. So the question, therefore, for you is, will you come and believe him? And if you are a Christian, it's this news that we are called to remind ourselves of continually. This is the message of our salvation, how we were saved. And a funny thing happens as we remember this together as Christians. Firstly, we remember God's judgment that we had earned, that we had deserved. And then we fix our eyes on Jesus and we think of what he has done to win our salvation. And then the strangest thing happens. We have this great comfort and joy and confidence because we know that all of our debt has been paid by Jesus, which then ushers forth in this weird well of emotion and thankfulness to Jesus for what he has done for us. Thereby, we glorify him and praise God as we ought to as Christians. This is not a once a week thing. This is a hourly, moment by moment thing that we love to remember as Christians is that our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. Christ alone. Our only hope and confidence is Christ alone. That's it. It's all that we have. He stood condemned in our place, saving us so that we would never have to face the judgment of God. This is a beautiful thing for us. This is our steady anchor in the midst of the storms of our life. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how do we know this good news? How did you come to, Christian, how did you come to know this good news? Yes, you did. You, someone, someone shared it with you. They shared the bad news. They shared the good news. They asked, do you want to believe in Christ? Today, do you want to believe in Jesus, your God, Savior, and King? For some reason, you who once hated these Christians and thought their book is stupid, you, for some reason in your heart, you're like, yes, I do. And, and everything within you, you're like, well, I don't even know what's happening. It, it, everything about you drastically changed. And you're like, yes and amen, Jesus. That, that's what I want, Jesus. Before, I did not love him. I hate it. Now I have this affection for him and I Yes, yes, I do. And, and as Christians, isn't that how we became Christians? In that moment, we're reformed, we're made new, we're made into different people by God's great kindness. See, and this, this now, after that transforms you, there's, there's something that happens when you, when you fall in love, when you see a great movie, you read a great book. What do you want to do? You want to talk about it. Because as you share love, as you post on Instagram or Facebook, or wherever you do that, look, I got engaged. Look, I'm dating this person. I, got, I passed this exam. I'm in this new grade. Whatever it is, you want, you want people to rejoice with you over these things, and it doubles your joy as you do so. Likewise, this is what we now do as Christians. This is why we called this whole series Living Letters to a Dying World, because this is who we are. We are these living letters, and as letters, we are sent into a dying world to testify, to speak, to share this message with the world around us so they might hear it and come to believe upon Jesus as well. And isn't that astounding that the whole reason that why we are left here by God for this distinct time with these neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members is that we are to be letters that are to be read and known by them. Thus, sharing our lives in the gospel is the only reason that we're here. Think about it for a moment. In heaven or on the renewed earth, 
What is the one thing that we cannot do that we are called to do now? What was the one thing in that day that we cannot do there, but we can do now? Share the gospel with those who are not yet Christians. Isn't that astounding? So that's why we're here. This is the work of every single Christian as living letters. It's part of our identity of who we are and why we're here, that God sends us out in the midst of a dying world that we might share this message. And this is not the role of some elite missionary class of Christian or super holy people who call themselves evangelists. This is the job of every single true Christian, not a select few of us. This is why C.H. Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter a missionary, a sent out one on mission from God or an imposter. And those are strong words and they're meant to be. Brother and sister, we are either sent as letters bearing the good news of the forgiveness of sins to a dying world to be known and read by all or else we are an imposter. This is why Matt a few weeks ago said that we don't have a choice to be living letters. We don't get a vote if we want to be a living letter. We don't get to raise our hand and opt in or opt out, right? I, 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 maybe I, I want to be a living letter, but, but maybe like later, like I don't have time now. Or like, I don't know, I, I, have, I have small kids, so I can't be a living letter now. Give me like 10 years. I'll be a living letter then. Or maybe when I'm retired, now I'll have time. Uh, maybe one day I'll X, Y, Z. When I get out of university, after I get married, after I have kids, after I... Because we don't get to opt in and opt out. We just are living letters. And if you're a Christian, simply by being a Christian, you are a living letter from Jesus that has been sent into the world, into your neighborhood and workplace and friend groups. You are, whether you want to or not, an ambassador of Jesus and his coming kingdom. That's your identity as a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have been sent by Jesus into the world for that purpose. And if not, he would have already taken you home. But the very fact that you have breath in your body right now means he is not done with you and your mission is not done. And when it is, he will kill you and just take you home. Praise God. And you get to go home. Until then, you got work to do. You got work to do. And as living letters, we're only sent into the world around us because Jesus was first sent into the world. Thus, our ministry reflects his. And we see this all over the Gospels, but particularly this is highlighted in the Gospel according to John, which is my favorite book of the Bible, where this word sent is used over and over again to describe the ministry of Jesus, that he was sent by the Father. I'm gonna give you two quick verses. Uh, John 6, 38 says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 7, 29, I know him, the Father, for I come from him and he sent me. Many, many more, but I don't have time for you at this moment. But, but this word sent carries with it the meaning that Jesus was dispatched to a precise location with a distinct message. This is also why Jesus said in Luke chapter four, verse 34, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. For what purpose? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. And isn't that interesting? Jesus was not sent by God the Father to speak truth to power or to set up hospitals or to feed the poor. Surely he did some of these things. He did all the works that the Father had prepared for him and he healed lots of people and fed thousands of bread in the wilderness. But how does he explain what he is to be doing until his death? What is to make up his life? Preaching. He's, he's a message to open his mouth and proclaim. He is to preach a distinct message with a precise, to precise locations that the Father had ordained. And then interestingly enough, at the end of the book, after Jesus has stood condemned in our place for sins and, and died and risen from the dead, he's talking with his disciples, and this is what he says. As the Father has sent me, sent me, even so, I am sending you. This is not simply for these specific men here with Jesus, but rather is the warp and the woof of the story of all Christians, right? So that just as the Father has sent Jesus, even so now he sends us as living letters, testifying to who Jesus is and how he has transformed our lives. Or as we have been saying for the last few weeks, God's intention in piercing our own hearts with the gospel is that our lips and our lives would be leveraged as we're sent into the world around us that others may hear, repent, and believe upon Jesus. Really, you could sum up our entire series with that one sentence. 
This is why I said earlier that a letter that is not sent doesn't fulfill the intentions of writing a letter. Likewise, our lives are not to be sent sitting on the sidelines or refusing to talk about the gospel lest we offend people or they think it's strange or because it's awkward or because we are their bosses or because they are our staff. No, we have been sent and we have a mission to accomplish. God has saved us by faith in Jesus and made us into these letters written by his spirit and sent us into the dying world that others might hear and know the gospel from our lips. Which is good news because you don't have to wander around wondering if you can decipher the will of God for your life. You ever think, what is God's will for my life? I don't know. You know, you meet someone and they're like, God spoke to me in my bowl of Cheerios. And you're like, all I've ever seen is, ooh. And I guess, I don't know, man. No, we're letters. We're sent by God. That's the will of God for us. To be letters sent to share the message with people of salvation sent by God into the world at this distinct time of human history so that we might share our lives and the gospel with them. As Christians, we are sent people. It's who we are. And that's why we're still here. And it, even more so, that's why Jesus' kingdom hasn't come crashing down upon the earth yet. You ever wondered, you look around the broken world around you and you're like, all right, Jesus, any day, man, you coming? Because this is crazy. And it's because he still has men and women, boys and girls, sheep that are his, who he intends to save. And when they hear his voice, they will come to him and be saved. And the wild thing is that God uses our voices in the different languages that we speak in this room as we share with people the good news of Jesus. Miraculously, they hear the voice of Jesus in our voices, even in a Texas twang like I have, and they trust and believe upon the gospel. Friends, that's wild that his voice is in our voices as we share. That's crazy. And in preparation for this sermon over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading and listening to a few books on this identity that we have as being sent. And I listened to one called Sent. I figured that's a good title. Uh, and it says, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. And I was like, well, this should be a great book. And it was. In this book, they outline three core principles or reminders that help us to daily think through our identity every day, right? They're kind of like handlebars that help us ride the bicycle of being sent. Like if you don't have those, you're sent, you just, you'll fall. Because you have no way to do it. So, so, so these are like handlebars that help us ride the bike of being sent. Like, so here are these reminders. Firstly, God is at work to draw people to himself. That's where we start. We start with the very heart of God and the intention of God, that he is seeking people. They are not seeking after him. Before I was a Christian, I was not seeking after him. Yeah, he sought after me. And he's always at work to draw people to himself. And this is a great reminder to ourselves often that God wants to draw people to himself. And he is always at work around us. He is, as we said, committed to saving his sheep and he will not fail to do so. And he is right now at work in billions of lives all over the world, drawing people to himself. So we start there, God's intention. He's always at work to draw people to himself. Secondly, God, God uses people like us to lead others to Jesus. And this is the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing to me that God is always at work. I kind of get that to draw people to himself, but that he would use people like us to lead others to Jesus. We who struggle with sin and depression, and anxiety, people like us, that's wild, that he wants to use my life and your life to lead others to Jesus is crazy. And then thirdly, God continually invites us into the work of evangelism, of sharing the gospel. It's part of those good deeds that the Father has prepared for us beforehand to walk in, as Ephesians 2.10 explains, and that God invites us into this work and then sends us into the world and uses us. And so what I've done, and I have a note in my phone where I look at those things as I'm starting my day, those three things. I look at my day and I'm like, all right, all these things are true. All right, Lord, I don't know how you're gonna use my life today. Here we go. And, and, and it's been wild to watch a number of conversations happen this, in the last two weeks, actually, as a result of things like this. And reflecting on these things, again, you might, naturally think, not, might not naturally think that you're much of an evangelist. I mean, this might be something that you think is a gift, right? Maybe that's what you're tempted to believe. I mean, surely there are evangelists in the church, people who are really good at inviting people to Jesus and maybe think that you're actually just better serving people or being hospitable or discipling them or teaching them how to live as a Christian after they become a Christian. So you might say, well, evangelism, not really my thing, not my gift, not part of my identity. 
And the only problem with that actually is the Bible. That's the, that's the only problem. The problem is the Bible. The Bible has an issue with that because we are all sent by Jesus as living letters. It's part of who we are. It's our identity in Christ. We are a sent people with a message declared, a particular people to take it to. So we don't get pass on being sent into the dying world as living letters because we're introverted or because we think we have no gifting in that area. Evangelism isn't just for weird extroverts like me who love to just talk to random people, though I do love that. But it's not, just for, it's not just for me. And we know that because who is it who formed you in your mother's wombs and knit you together and gave you that personality that you have? And who has called you to share your life and the gospel with those around you? It's God. Right now, you might feel like Moses, right, being called to some work that you can't do. And you're like, me? I can't even talk. <laughs> Remember that from back in, early on in Exodus? And if you feel like that, you should. You should feel like that. And that's why we depend upon God the Spirit empowering us to do the work that he has called us to do as his people. Because you cannot do it on your own power. And isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say in the book of John that only extroverted people are to be sent? Like he doesn't make that caveat. He's not like, all right, guys, five of you, this is not for you. Judas, we already know. Uh, but you guys, you are the one. He doesn't do that. All of them are sent. All Christians are sent. We're living letters, commissioned, written, and sent by Jesus with our personalities and quirks and the weird things that make us who we are. And we have all been given the gospel as our message and people around us to share that message with. And think about this. I was reading Romans chapter one this past week and I uh, came into that one of the first sections of that, verses eight to 15. And Paul writes in Romans chapter one about his longing to go to Rome to be mutually encouraged by the Christians there and to reap a harvest among them, to share the gospel and, and, and see a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of good fruit coming from people that aren't Christians, especially among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And he wants to see people come to know Jesus because all Christians want people to come to know Jesus. And in Romans 1, 14 to 15, Paul talks about how he views his life. And this is what he writes. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And that phrase, I am under obligation, is such a fascinating one. Do you know the, another way that you can translate that word, I am under obligation? I'm a debtor. That's fascinating. Because what this demonstrates to us is that Paul saw himself as under obligation to share the gospel with those who have not yet heard it, meaning he owed it to them. And I wonder if you see yourself like that. Have you ever thought about how we as Christians have an obligation? We are debtors to those who do not yet know the gospel. We owe it to them. In contemplating about Paul's words, David Platt, he writes that every saved person, every Christian, this side of heaven, so got air in your lungs. You owe the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. And he is right. See, brother and sister, you are living letters. You are living letters under a holy obligation to leverage your lives, to spend and be spent, to bring the good news of salvation next door as well as into the nations. Not because God needs you to accomplish his plans and purposes, but because he's chosen to use your life for his glory as his ambassadors. And aren't we so thankful that someone understood this identity as a sent person who knew that they were under obligation to share the gospel with someone like us? That they loved you enough to open their mouths and share with you? That's how I became a Christian. That's how you became a Christian. And as faithful living letters were sent by God to open their mouths and share with us. And as they did, our hearts were transformed. Thus now, as living letters, we get to participate in that holy calling as well. So we are living letters sent with the gospel to those around us. So let's get super practical, because that means that God has sent you even now into Windsor Park, St. Vital, and Island Lakes, and Sage Creek, and Wolseley, and up in LaSalle, and Niverville, and Steinbach, and Blumenort, and Gimli, and Sedon's Corner, and Marshan to be his missionaries, his sent ones, with a particular message, the gospel for particular people. In the future, God might even open the door to have you plant a church as a lead pastor. Or he might call you to help plant a church as a church planting team member in one of the areas closer to where you live or in another city here in Canada or to be sent out of Canada into the nations. And wherever he leads you, the calling is the same. We as his sent people share our lives and the gospel with others as living letters so that others might know the good news and be saved 
And, and we as pastors in this church know that it is our call to help equip, train, and send you out to make disciples who know how to make disciples. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not here trying to fill the seats of this tiny little building called Willow Lake. Our aim is not to get more bums into these chairs. Our goal, our aim, what we're pleading with God for is that we might train, equip, and send you out into everyday ordinary rhythms of life as missionaries with the content of the gospel so that others might be saved. This is why we do everything that we do. And even more recently, it's why we started our preachers forum, that we can train preachers and worship leaders and sound tech folk so that Lord willing, when God raises up some godly man with a desire to plant a church, we can test that calling and then equip him and then send him out with a team of people who have a passion to live their lives as living letters, as missionaries and evangelists in that town or that RM or that section of the city so that we might plant healthy churches that plant healthy churches. See, our aim here is not to grow a large group of spectators, but to train and equip you to be in the game, to use your gifts that God has given you and to fan those into flame so we might see hundreds of thousands of people in Winnipeg become Christians and millions of people in Canada and billions of people globally. That's our aim. We're going big, baby. We're going big because we believe it's worth it. We believe that every sacrifice we make for the gospel is worth it. And we believe that God's called us to leverage our lives as living letters to be sent out to invite others to explore Jesus and to know the gospel with us. So they might come to have the same hope that we have as Christians. Friends, this is so important to me that I left everything in my own home country that I might be here. That's how important this is to me. I'm all in. And the reason why I'm all in is because I, like Paul and like you, am under obligation as a living letter. God has chosen for me to be here just as he's chosen you, and I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to be an unopened letter stuffed in a drawer. It's pointless. I want to be sent. I want to live out this identity. I want to see people come to know Jesus and be forgiven of their sins. And let me just affirm something that we know to be true. See, as we talk about faith and what the Bible says, it is not, it's not a good way to win friends and influence others when you start taking your faith seriously. It's just not. In fact, we will end up losing everything that we have and being thrown into prison for our beliefs. We've seen that in the last two years. And if we lose our jobs or are thrown into prisons for our convictions, then praise God that he has providentially given us the same message, but now a different audience. You know what I mean? Guys I might never meet, and I'm like, well, now you're my celly. What's up, man? Do you know Jesus? Praise God. And so we who know the gospel are called to be those who are speaking, serving, laying down our lives, those kind of letters that are under obligation to those who have not heard about Jesus. And we're called to risk everything. We're called to risk promotions at work. We're called to risk job security. We're called to risk friendships. We're called to risk what people think about us on social, everything. To risk it all, to tell them the bad news and the good news of the gospel so that they might hear the good news of God extended to them through Jesus that they can come and repent and believe. And we're promised that we don't do this alone. Firstly, because we have a local church that partners with us and encourages us in this endeavor. Secondly, because we have men and women in small groups that share their lives with us, that we can share together our lives with those who are far from Jesus, they might see the Spirit at work in us. And thirdly, more importantly, we have God the Spirit who indwells us and empowers us as he uses our lives to draw people to himself. This is the work that we are to give our lives to as sent people. And friends, if the Lord gives us 40 more years together, 40, I will be 75. I hope I will still be spry. And if he does, I'll probably talk slower. But if he does, my prayer is that we would, as, with, as we partner with other churches and plant, church planting initiatives and international missions networks, that we would be known as a church, those crazy Christians that love to leverage their lives to participate in the mission of God, those who cannot quit speaking and sharing about the good news that we have found in Jesus. Churches need to be known for a lot of things. That's my aim. Someone's like, oh, Trip, do you mean all those all those people that just keep sharing Jesus with people, yep, I'm part of them. Oh, okay. That's who we are, man. 
And it's my big prayer that some of us and some of, some of us will quit our jobs and move for the sake of the gospel. My prayer is that God would send some of our kids to go live in unreached people groups around the world so that we don't see them during Christmas and birthdays because they are living out their gospel identity as those who are sent to the nations. My prayer is that some of our grandchildren, would have, that would be true of them. And then my ultimate prayer is that our great-grandchildren would see that to be true. Wouldn't that be amazing? Friends, this is why we're here. This is literally the only reason that I'm here. I, I get asked all the time, people find out I'm from Texas, especially over the last couple of years, and they look at me and they say, why in the world are you here? You could be there. Do you know you could be there? Do you know that? I do know that. Uh, and I've been crafting this answer. This is, this is, <clears throat> this is how I'm gonna answer it from now on. I'm gonna test drive it on you. So here it is. Well, it's because I've been saved from facing the wrath of God for eternity future as Jesus stood condemned in my place. And I'm under obligation by God to remain here, to be faithful here. This is where he has me. This is where he has ordained for me to be. And I'm under obligation to the people I come across in my everyday life to share with them the hope of the gospel. And unless he fills in the blank check of my life somewhere else, this is where I will be. That's my answer. I gotta memorize it a little bit more, but that's, that's it. And it's not, a, it's not a special calling for me or for our pastors or a select group of Christians. It's all of our calling. This is the call of every single Christian and this is why you're here. This is why God has chosen for you to live at this time and this place so that you might share your lives in the gospel with those who are far from Jesus. That we might open up our dinner tables and our lives with one another and those who are far from Jesus so we might share with them the hope of the gospel and they might be saved. And if I can be honest, as I was writing this sermon, I kept smiling to myself over and over again because I thought about, uh, I thought about how we are living letters sent by Jesus and, and I thought particularly about how this sermon is so unnecessary for our church. Gloriously unnecessary. Let me tell you what I mean. Every, every uh, especially throughout the last four weeks, man, I say unnecessary because the frequency of which I have heard from many of your lips over the last few weeks how God is using your life as you share your life and the gospel with others. Even when it costs you dearly. Even when it costs you dearly. As living letters, you're already doing these things. And this is something that is already happening. So I pray this sermon is simply just fanning into flame what God is already doing in your life. So I pray it's helpful and encouraging, but I think it's unnecessary. I just simply wanted to remind us as we're wrapping up this whole sermon series of who we are, that we're the sent people of God and to have us remember how God is deliberately sending you into the lives of people around you so that you might be, so they might be happy in the gospel as you use your voice and share it with them. And so keep on encouraging one another and sharing about how you're doing in this in your life because that fans that flame of expectation that God really is working around us and using us in his plans and purposes as we are expecting him to do so. In fact, just this past week, I found out that one of the guys from our church stepped up and invited a friend to study the Bible with him. And they were gonna meet this past week for the first time. Praise God. I heard of another guy uh, from our church who was asking for prayer for an upcoming work call so that as he shares a bit about who he is with his teammates, that he might share a bit of his own story of being a Christian with them as well. And I said, a boy. And as I was talking about sharing our faith two weeks ago with a few guys over at Cafe Postal in St. Boniface, one of the guys, John, shared with us in that moment something he had completely forgotten about part of his story of how he became a Christian. <clears throat> he, he shared the story of this. There was this Chinese girl he, he met on an airplane a number of years ago. Unbeknownst to John, she had prayed before getting onto the plane that God would sit her beside someone who needed to hear about Jesus. And lo and behold, it was John. Isn't that awesome? And, and this young girl, through their plane ride, shared with John about her mom who had cancer and how doctors are 100% sure she would die. And she prayed and God healed her mom. And then the young girl shared about going to church in China and how being that they were under persecution, she had to go alone in the middle of the night, walking down a certain path to an underground church to fellowship with other Christians and to hear the word of God preached and then told him about how God had healed her from some mental pains, from some past physical trauma that she had walked through. And she's just leveraging this whole plane ride to tell John all of these things about her life and about her faith in Jesus. And John recounted how her story brought him to tears and how impactful it was and how she talked about God and how God was using her to speak to him that day about his character and nature. Years later, after walking through some medical stuff, John realized how fickle life was and, and had this desire to use all this time left on earth dedicated to knowing and living for God. 
which is funny because that's the same thing that girl had prayed about. He had a hunger to know God and asked lots of questions. And so he found a gaming server on Discord called Scripture Alone. And there were some Christians on that server who had spent time gaming, but also answering questions about God. And it was they who explained a lot of things about the gospel with John, leveraging their gaming time to also answer questions and share their faith, which I just think is awesome. And, and it was they who suggested that John find a local church to join up with. And then he saw us on Instagram, of all places, and we connected with him, and then John was baptized a couple of weeks later, and his whole life had been turned upside down by Jesus as God sent people into his life at different times and in different ways. People who believed God was always at work drawing people to himself, who believed that God uses people like them to draw others to himself, and that God continually invites us into that work of evangelism. And I can just imagine God smiling as he was working in John's life throughout those years, right, by orchestrating, like, who John would sit next to on the plane. God's like, oh, oh yeah, okay, good. Yeah, God, that's, that's going there. And then, and then who would be in that gaming server as he jumped on and found that scripture alone? The spirit is like, got it. Uh, so he gets into there. And then those guys answering questions and the spirit at work in John's life. And then as John opened Instagram and saw that, uh, saw, saw our church, and then as he met some of the men and women of the trails, and as John was sharing this story two weeks ago, I asked if he had ever connected with that girl on the plane. I said, I said did, you ever, did you ever tell her that you became a Christian? Like, and he's like, he started looking through his phone. He's like, I don't know. I think I followed her once on some platform. I don't know. I, I have no idea. And I think that that is the coolest thing. Also kind of sad, but also really cool because she will never know probably this side of heaven, how God used her in that time in her life. She probably walked away from sharing the gospel with him on a plane and was like, I don't, I don't know, Lord. I don't know. And yet now, seeing all that God has done in and through his life would be the coolest thing. And I love how God uses our lives like that and, and how we may not ever know this side of heaven, how impactful our lives were in the lives of those around us, ever. And, and, and yet maybe we will, but, but maybe we won't. So as we're wrapping up, I'm gonna leave you two questions and then we're gonna be done. First, who was it that God sent into your life ah, to share their life and the gospel with you? Who was it? And aren't you thankful that they did? Practically, I think a great thing to do this week, I think it would be really cool, is if you remember who that person was, if you even wrote them a little note. How cool would that be? For somebody to write you a note and say, hey, thanks for sharing Jesus with me. I know that was probably not comfortable, and I'm very glad that you did. Even if it was your mom and dad, your aunt and uncle, an old Bible study leader, someone, write them a letter, send it to them this week. That would be so encouraging. Secondly, we ought to then ask, who is God sending you to right now? Which colleagues, neighbors, classmates, or friends do you know that don't know the gospel? They don't know this good news. And how are you trying to leverage your life that they might hear the gospel from you? Maybe there is someone who even comes to mind right now that you know God is calling you to invite over to supper or to get to know better, to invite them to read the Bible with you or to start sharing naturally about what you're reading about in the Bible or learning from God. As we said at the beginning of the sermon, a letter that is not sent doesn't fulfill the purpose for which it was written as a letter. And we are living letters sent by God into a dying world to speak about Jesus. So as a living letter, who is God sending you to? Who has he divinely ordained for you to be around? Because we know the gospel, we're called to deliver it. So where has he sent you? Let's pray. Mm-hmm.